Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nicole. And I'm Gina. And today we are dishing about speech uh, with speech-language pathologist Jess Brickman on the topic of early intervention. But before welcoming her to the show, uh, Gina, what's going on? Yeah, well, actually, no. I want you to start because I have been waiting to hear about your trip. I know I've seen pictures, but I haven't heard anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will. We are, I don't know, three days, four days back from Bora Bora. Uh, which if you're trying to place it on a map, um, I was too. And just think it's like south of, it's like halfway between New Zealand and Hawaii, basically. So our travel there included a drive to Chicago, which is about 90 minutes for us. We stayed the night close to O'Hare and woke up the next morning, caught our flight from Chicago to San Francisco, which was four, four and a half hours, then San Francisco to Tahiti, which was eight and a half hours, oh spent the night in Tahiti at an air at the at a um, hotel, flew out the next morning to Bora Bora, which was like 45 minutes, and then you boat hmm. into your resort. So like at the airport in Bora Bora, there's just boats like there. You don't drive. You just boat. Everything's by boat. It's like that remote. And in reverse, we basically did the same thing. Boat uh, Bora Bora to Tahiti, Tahiti to San Fran, San Fran to Chicago without any of the the sleepovers. So it was uh, it was a lot of travel. But I will just say Bora Bora is exactly as described in terms of its beauty. I mean, the color of the water, it was just one of those where you feel like you're living in a Pinterest ad, you know, while you're there. It was, I mean, it was, it was just, it was quality over quantity. You know, people are like, well, what did you do? Well, if you're looking for like all the activities, you don't go to Bora Bora. Like you go to Bora Bora to literally take in just the beauty and full on relaxation. Um, it is remote and stunning. So that's what we did. I mean, we we played tennis, we ate, we um, I mean, there was a little bit of entertainment, not much, but it was really just like calm. I mean, the sun goes down around six, six thirty. It's, you know, pretty much dark out and the sun comes up about six. So there's 12 hours of darkness. Uh, the bed was just incredibly comfortable. We slept ample, um, not like excessive, uh, but we were in one of those little overwater bungalows. And so our like coffee table in our bungalow, which was 1500 square feet, by the way, this, I don't even know how that's considered a bungalow. Like that's bigger than many people's homes. Um, it's massive, but you could see like Mark would like float under the bungalow and <laughs> you could like yeah. see him through the floor. I, and I'll, I'll post a link to, um, both the blog post I did on the resort. We stayed at St. Regis for anybody interested. That's a Marriott resort. There's not a ton of resorts in Bora Bora. Uh, so we really went with something that, um, we, yeah, just looked of most interest to us. The food was phenomenal. Yeah, I, I have nothing bad to say other than it's outrageously expensive and so far away. And also the sun is so intense. My entire body itches from the sun. And I'm my, like my upper lip is so dry. <laughs> 
it's like crusty. Oh, yeah. And I wore sunscreen, like probably okay. not as much as I should have, but I never was like burned. I mean, I've had I've had sunburns and I did not get sunburned, but it just sucks all the moisture from your skin. I can only imagine. And you haven't seen the sun in quite a long time. Yeah, I live in Michigan. Like I'm <laughs> Casper the ghost at this stage. Um, so it was quite the abrupt uh, welcome back to sunshine. Yeah, it was the resort was just beautiful. It was fun that we had like bikes that we could tootle around on. And yeah, it was I paddleboarded for the first time and I got to standing, which was I did it on a windy day. And it makes me respect all the more people who paddleboard on lakes like Michigan, um, Lake Michigan, I should say, like, it, I mean, it's rough out there sometimes. It was it, it, that core muscle strength is a real thing. Oh um, my gosh. I, it looks, it, I can just tell by looking at it, even though it looks quote unquote easy, I can just tell it's one of those things that it's just not as easy as they make it look. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, I think the two funniest parts of the trip were, Mark's going to kill me for saying this. Okay, but I can't wait so to hear it. I'm like out floating in the water. We brought, inflatables and we tethered them with rope to our bungalow so we didn't go like floating away we could just chill out mm-hmm. and he comes out in it's a joke amongst our hockey friends a jort so jean short like speedo <laughs> and i had no idea that he had packed this bought this anything and he is going to totally kill me for talking about this on the show but it was 100 well, percent like gonna a share photos joke. oh no <laughs> that would be the end of my marriage no i will text oh you gosh. a photo <laughs> Because <laughs> all I can do is picture it. I I'm picturing this. It might be worse than what it actually looks like in the in my mind. Yeah, for those who have seen, <laughs> they, I believe the exact words are, "I can't unsee that." Uh, but yeah, yeah. a jort oh, speed out. Oh my gosh, it was so funny. It it was just yeah. I was like, we are ruining paradise for other people with how hard I was laughing. Um, because noise <laughs> traveled like really bad. But I would say we felt remote. There was not like people in the bungalows next to us somehow. I don't know. I think they do a good job of staggering people. Anyway, that was really funny. And then the other, I was also floating out in the water. Do you see a theme? And Mark's up there, uh, like on the deck and he goes, Nicole, there's like a stingray behind you. And I was like, oh my God, like, do I need to get out of the water? And he's like, no, he's, he's floating the other direction. He's swimming away. But it's, that's how clear the water is. And there are sharks, but they're, they're Mm. little, they're little sharks. They're not, they said they're interested in like, they're scared of people. So they're, they have no shark problems at all there. And the stingray situation, like as long as you don't, you know, step on one, you're fine. But the water outside our bungalow was like 10 feet deep. So you were not like standing, you were floating. So I felt safe a hundred percent. Like we would float at night and float. Like that's what we did. We just floated. We just hung out in our little inner tubes for six days. That's awesome. Yeah, wow. it was great. Thanks for asking. Um, we will never be back, I'm sure. So it, I'm, I'm glad we <laughs> did it up so far. <laughs> the clear water always freaks me out. Like we went to Mexico when I was younger and did parasailing. And the whole time, all I was doing was looking below me at the clear water and looking for sharks. I The whole time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There is something about the clear water. Like I'd rather not see it, which is real weird. Like I think most people are probably the the opposite. They want to be able to see what's under them. Yeah, I I do not. Like I, what I don't know is is fine. Won't (laughs) hurt me. (laughs) Yeah, most people are the exact opposite for sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what's, I'm weird. Anyway, what's going on with you? Yeah, nothing quite as exciting. Truthfully, (laughs) there is not much going on around here. Weather is still... You know, it's getting there right now. We are actually hosting Easter this uh, this weekend. Uh, so when this comes out, I think it will actually be Easter on the day this comes out. And 
just kind of planning for that. My my brother who now lives in Wisconsin and his new girlfriend who I've met before because they dated before and then they broke up and now they're back together again. Uh, we'll be here with my mom and dad and his wife and it'll be it'll be fun. That'll be a, a good time. I think my mom's actually going to sleep over and kind of help us get prepared for that because I don't have time to host Easter, but she's gracious enough because she always she lives in a condo, a really nice condo. You stayed there. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. But it's yeah, it, but it's not um, it's not great for entertaining because it's just not not that our house is that great for entertaining but it's definitely better for entertaining. So she always tries to pawn the entertaining off on, on me and then she feels guilty about it. So then she like does anything she can to help, which I really, really appreciate. Um, but of course we don't mind doing it at all. Let's see what else. Oh, I was listening to the Q and a episode and I actually want to go back and kind of, I, I, I think I talked a little bit about how I did micro needling on my neck just for some texture issues that I have on my neck. And how someone told me that microneedling actually isn't the good thing, isn't the best thing to do. And I actually went back because I was considered, I, I just wanted to talk to them about it. The people who did it, you know, like what, you know, do you think that it was helpful? And I just to kind of talk, talk to them to see what they thought about what this other person had said about how microneedling isn't the right thing to do on my neck. And they actually showed me a before picture before I got it. And I hadn't seen that because... I don't know. I didn't take a picture myself and it was in their files. And let me tell you, it actually did um, improve the texture and look of my neck quite a bit. So I'm going to take back what I said before. I definitely think the microneedling was helpful. And again, just so just to kind of pick so you can kind of picture. I just had these like really thick. They're not necessarily wrinkled. I don't even know what they are, but just it's just a texture issue. And it doesn't bother me that much. But they do these really good deals where I where I go on microneedling and I just took advantage and uh and like I said, I didn't think it did much at first, but looking back at what it looked like before, it looks significantly better. And it's very minimally invasive. It actually only takes about 10 minutes total after they numb you. Uh, and then you're fine to go back to work or do whatever. Uh very, very uh non-invasive and doesn't hurt, in my opinion. And I think, like I said, it it really did make a difference. So I take back what I said before. If you're interested in that, I would I would suggest it. But I've never done it on my face or anything, so I'm not sure. Most people do it on their face. I don't think they usually do it on their neck, so I can't really speak to that. Don't you think in general that's a good... Because sometimes I'll be like, eh, I don't know that whatever Botox is working. And then I look back at old pictures and I'm like, yep, my skin, which is a credit, I would say, to both Botox and a skincare routine, looks so much better than it did 10 years ago, even. Yeah. Yeah. A before and after picture is key because, you know, we are our own worst enemies. And the more we look in the mirror, the more flaws we see. And I'm truly, truly working on that. I actually have some mantras that I, that I use. And honestly, even just not looking in the mirror as much <laughs> is really helpful as well. But yes, looking at before and after pictures. Yes. When I, when I scroll through my I was even scrolling through after I we recorded that Q&A episode, kind of trying to find my own picture of me somewhere with my neck showing. I just couldn't find a good one. And so it was really helpful that they took that before picture uh, at the place where I went. And most places do that. I know that your place did that too when you got it between your eyebrows, the Botox. But yeah, it's, it is helpful to look at those at those before so you have something to compare to. Absolutely. All right. So yeah, that's really it going on here. Well. <laughs> You want to do our reminder? Oh, 
listen to me. I always forget doing that. I do not know why, but yes, absolutely. Reminder, before we begin this uh, interview, just a quick favor to ask. Since you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us and they really help us reach more people. So of course, we'd appreciate it. Um, and today we welcome my friend Jess Brickman to the show. Uh, she's getting married soon, so she'll be she'll no longer be Brickman, which is weird. Uh, but she is a speech language pathologist with years of experience in early childhood development, who now works for a large medical system, seeing patients with a variety of oral motor challenges and diagnoses. So she ta- t- bleh, today she joins me on the show to discuss speech and early intervention. So without further ado, I will welcome Jess Brickman to the show. Jess, welcome to the show. I have to tell my listeners my favorite Jess story, but perhaps um, a bit of background first on how we first know each other. So years ago, when you moved to Southwest Michigan for grad school, you were seeking part-time work as a nanny because you had worked in child care with children. And we were seeking a nanny. And so for just over a year, you were it. And you fell in love with our kids and we fell in love with you. At least we think you love our kids uh, and we love your energy and zest for life. Uh, and we're still good friends today. And even though you've long moved on from us and now you're a soon to be married speech language pathologist working full time, I do have to tell my my favorite Jess story. So you were entrusted with our dear children when we went to Seattle for Mark's sister's wedding. Do you recall? I do. And I don't know. What was it? Three or four days? Yeah, I think so. Like a long weekend, maybe. Yeah. And you run a tight ship. Like it's Mark always says that Jess has the perfect balance of like fun with structure. And so that next Monday morning after we had come back from the wedding and you had gone home and we were the kids were back with us. We woke up in the morning and the kids' beds were made. And I just (laughs) joked. I was like, they were at Jess boot camp all weekend. But it was just like the you you have to know Jess, I guess, to appreciate it and the fact that my kids responded really well to the structure. So it was that's just my favorite Jess story. I love that story. That's so cute. <laughs> uh, so tell us a bit about you and your work as a speech language pathologist. So my name is Jess, as you hear, and I am primarily a pediatric speech language pathologist. I do work with some adults, but I prefer peds. I do everything. So like every age and every diagnosis, all the way from our picky eaters through to language and speech production, a little bit of social communication as well. Yeah. I actually didn't know that about picky eating. Really? Well, do you see a lot of kids for picky eating? I do, but not like solely picky eating. So I see them more for like why are they a picky eater? Is it because of like the structure? Is there something, is there a tongue tie or a lip tie that's holding them back? Like why can't, or why are they choosing not to eat? Uh-huh. Interesting. A long time ago, when you and I first met, you had said that I think your favorite ages you said were like ages two to four or somewhere in that range. Is that still the case? And what do you enjoy most about working with kids? And perhaps what are some of the challenges? I still love that age. I feel like it's grown that age range. I feel like it's definitely grown because now I just see so many different kids and so many different ages. And it's just so fun to relate to all ages on different levels. So I feel like I love that age, but it's definitely expanded. Um, And the thing I enjoy most about working with kids is just like 
They're so fun. I mean, you know, some of them are scared because they feel like they're coming into a doctor's office. And then we just do so much therapy through play that it just ends up being fun. And we see like great, great growth in all these kids. Any challenges? Lots of challenges. (laughs) You never know what you're going to get, right? So some days they didn't sleep well, they're hungry. You know, they're not always able to tell us what's going on. Like, most adults are able to. Well, and I'm guessing in your practice, it could be the families that are more challenging than the kids themselves. Absolutely. (laughs) Or the situation that they're coming to. Yeah. And a lot of it is totally out of their control. So it's, it's hard. Yeah. Well, we have a ton of parents that listen to the show. And so as parents or caregivers, when should somebody be concerned about a child's speech, especially in those first five years or so? I always tell parents that they know their kids best, and I'm sure many parents are following the milestones. So I feel like you, if you think something is off, it's worth getting it checked out. Um, a lot of the younger things we notice, if like kids aren't imitating even like clapping or waving, maybe they're not making great eye contact, not cooing, not babbling, even as for the for our difficult. Um, difficulty latching for some of our feeders too. So it's Mm -hmm. really, it can be really young. Starting infancy then. Literally like Mm -hmm. first week. If you're a breastfeeding mom, why isn't my child latching? You should probably either talk to your lactation consultant or somebody to see what's going on. Hmm. Interesting. So kind of parents' intuition, follow that. Yes. I always tell parents that you are your child's best advocate. So even if they seemingly are following those milestones, but you just feel like they're not looking at me like they should, or just very, very simple things. You know, definitely talk to your pediatrician and see what's going on. You mentioned clapping, babbling, cooing. What are generally the first signs of a concern or issue with specifically speech? And what are the most common root causes for those speech issues? So, as far as speech, as in like sound production, Um, you sometimes won't know until a later age. Like, so usually between nine to 12 months, you're, you know, some of those first words are emerging, um, you know, up to maybe those 13, 14 months. But if you're just like, you know, my kid never really looks at me very well, or isn't really responding to like very, very familiar people, the way you would think a baby might, even if it's your first kid, I would think, you know, there might be it might be worth getting some form of of an evaluation. But as far as speech goes, can you understand your kid or can an unfamiliar listener understand your kid by around like two years old? And if they're getting frustrated when you can't understand them, then I would say get them into a speech therapist and see what's going on. What letters tend to be the hardest or sounds? Definitely the R, especially the vocalic R, which is like the E-R, the O-R, the A-I-R. That R is hard for a lot of our kids. And then I would say probably second is either the S because lists are really common or the L. Hmm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And April is Autism Awareness Month. Can you give some background on how and why autism can affect speech? So autism can just affect a lot of things. So as far as speech and communication goes, a lot, a lot of times our children who have autism 
have difficulty with social communication. Maybe they're they're talking a lot, but it's a lot of jargon. So maybe it's something at the motor piece, the oral motor piece isn't just connecting um, or just general language. It's just hard for them to generalize. If they see a picture of a dog or if they have a dog, that is what a dog is. But the neighbor's dog isn't a dog because it doesn't look the same. Mm. So it's just harder. It takes a lot more brain work, work to really get their language going. Mm. Okay. and. In children with autism, what it what are some of the best ways to improve speech? Um, it's there's a variety, but definitely like social, like getting them to interact with you on a social basis. Uh, like every kid pre- presents completely different, especially kids with on um, with autism. Um, you know, they could be really social kids, but just don't have that language piece. So maybe they have a weak jaw, and there's a reason. They're not speaking because their articulators aren't working properly. I mean, it's very on a child by child basis, but I would say most commonly with autism, we're working on a lot of that social communication piece. So social communication versus like a motor issue. Correct. So like engaging with others, like even adults, but most, a lot of times kids with autism will engage a lot with their familiar adults, but if they are around their same age peers. If it's an unfamiliar situation, they're not as likely to go and interact. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So kind of a side comment. Cause you, you mentioned lip ties, tongue ties, all that. That as, as a parent who hasn't had to deal with that, the, the sound just, it sounds torturous to correct it. How painful, traumatized, like what concerns, if any, should a parent have and what type of healing or what's kind of the, is there any benefit to not correcting a tongue tie or anything like that? Or it should it always be corrected? I don't know any, I know nothing about this stuff. So it's a very, um, like it's becoming more common to correct it. And a lot of times the reason we're correcting it is because there's a problem. So my child isn't transitioning from purees to, you know, the next level of soft foods and or they're having a negative reaction. They're coughing after they're eating. So it's very child by child basis. Some kids are eating fine and you don't know until later when they're not saying a sound correctly that the reason might be because they're tongue tied. Um, so it's very um, new, newly researched. It's becoming a lot more common. People are getting the revision sooner, but it's not as scary. If you go to the right dentist to do the procedure, it's not a scary experience for the child. They should have a laser and a laser means it doesn't even touch the child's skin. It's just a laser, like a light that, that burns off the skin there. And a lot of times if there's a lip tie, there's a tongue tie and vice versa. Um, so again, very child by child basis, but our mouth heals very quickly. So if you, you know, all you have to do is stimulate those oral movements. So do the exercises your dentist gives you to practice. Um, and that's huge because we don't want that skin to end up growing back and having the child having to go through it again. Do they usually numb the area? Um, it depends. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Again, that that's like the dentist dentistry profession. If you have a good pediatric dentist, um, they, that's their wheelhouse, (laughs) not Uh mine. I just deal with it 
a lot of times I'm referring to a dentist because, you know, a child will come to me because they're not transitioning from one level of food to the next. And then we find out, well, they're kind of landlocked. So that's why. And then a lot of times I'm like, well, are they cooing? Are they babbling? And, and mom or dad is like, no, no, they're not. So the probably another reason is that they can't even move their mouth or the articulators that we need them to, to speak or, you know, those beginning pre-verbal speaking, quote unquote, to end eating. Uh-huh. Interesting. Another off script question. <laughs> so baby led weaning, you're probably familiar, but for those listening who aren't, is kind of the dismissal of kid food or purees and kind of just advancing kids to food food when they're prepared. Um, any thoughts on that from an SLP perspective on kind of doing just foods presented as you or I would eat them for a child? Yeah, so I love I think a combination is great. I think, you know, kids do need purees to make sure they're actually getting those foods or, you know, formula or milk or whatever you're supplementing with. But I love the idea of introducing kids to foods they have to quote unquote work for at a young age because you're really getting, you know, that they're going to be eating that stuff eventually. So you're you're exposing them to it at a young age. And it's safe because you're sitting with them and you're watching them eat and you're giving them just bigger sizes. You're not giving them little, little pieces that they can generally, you know, just shove all in their mouth. So Mm -hmm. I am pro combination. Obviously, just a fed kid is great. But if you offer them some big foods, some period foods, just a variety of textures is really important, even from a young age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, so I'm kind of going back to the school age kids here uh, and stepping away from autism and baby led weaning as kids enter the schools and you have you've worked in schools um, as an SLP when they enter school at age like five. When do schools typically intervene with speech therapy or when should they intervene? So those may be two different times. And is there a situation where seeking intervention perhaps outside of school or in addition to should be considered? Yeah, it's all child by child basis. But I would say typically, if uh, the school, the teacher has a concern, they'll, if it's a big concern, they'll probably intervene early in the school year. But I would say if it's like, oh, maybe the kid's borderline, it's maybe the those tougher sounds that they're not getting, they'll probably wait a little bit. Um, a parent can always request a um, assessment or a screening from the schools. Um, So a lot of times if you're concerned, I wouldn't even wait for the school to intervene. I would just say, hey, I'd like my child to be assessed for either their speech because you're not understanding them or their language because, you know, they can't really describe things well or tell stories or they don't always follow those multi-step directions. So I would say if you're concerned, always step in. And don't just wait for the schools to intervene. And then seeking intervention outside of the schools, it's very, again, child by child or parent preference, but it and insurance (laughs) driven. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times it depends on what your insurance will cover. But I always say with a lot of our kids, the more intervention at these young ages, the better. You know, hit it hard for a while. Hopefully we'll get them where we want them. And then 
go from there. But I feel like getting the more intervention at a young age, the better. And research now is coming out to actually match that, depending on the diagnoses. Mm-hmm. This is probably a dumb question. Do schools, public schools, are they required to have an SLP? So they are. Is If it's a school who, ha- like if you have students with an IEP, which is an individualized education plan, and they require speech, yes, because an IEP is a legal document. And if they are supposed to have 20 minutes of speech per week, they are legally, the school is legally obligated to have speech for that student for 20 minutes per week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Um, I, I would, I guess I would be interested in what the rates are like in, in private schools if they tend to staff SLPs or, or what the situation is there. Well, so depending, so when I worked in the schools, I don't know as much, it depends on the private school for sure. But I know like if a child is homeschooled and they have speech on their IEP, they are able to go to the school and receive their speech services. So I believe it's similar in a private school. Again, it's very district dependent, Mm -hmm. but if you can get your kid to the school for speech, I think they are able to get it as long as they qualify through that IEP or a service plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But again, it's very district and state dependent. Yeah. Interesting. I always remember um, kids getting pulled out of class and I was always so jealous that they got to go to speech and I didn't. <laughs> and they got like cool stickers and. Oh um, yeah. Everyone wants to come to speech, especially when it's bring a friend day. Everyone wants to be your friend. <laughs> well, that's fun. It's so fun. That's because we do a lot of therapy through play. It's so important. Oh, yeah. You got to make it fun for him. Right. Okay. So as a parent who I didn't have that like sixth sense about any concerns, um, I feel fortunate, but I also feel like I wouldn't know quite what to look for. So can you give some general guidelines or benchmarks for kind of tracking progress, whether that's like this number of words by this age or, or what are some like just SLP benchmark type of things that we can look for that are very like just specific and measurable? Yes. So it starts from a very young age, no motor imitations. So like I mentioned earlier, if your child isn't clapping, waving, maybe they're not making eye contact, um, you know, as they get older, not responding to their name around nine to 12 months, they should have those first words. And then we like to say two years, they do like start combining words. So we put two years two years, two words together. So more please, you know, starting to just pair. And then at three, we like to see three words together. So I want apples or, you know, start making, having longer utterances. And then as far as speech and clarity goes, um, you should be for sure the parent who is a familiar listener or caregiver around two years, they, you should understand about 65% of what they say. Around three years, we like to see you understanding about 80% of what they say. And then four years and older, you should be able to completely understand them. But come for an evaluation earlier if your child is getting frustrated. Like if they're if you're asking them to repeat themselves all the time and they're getting frustrated, I feel like that would be warranted to get a speech evaluation. Mm-hmm. And then some of those other social communication things are just, you know, difficulty interacting with peers, um, not trying to communicate, maybe not playing with toys how you would expect a child to play with toys. So things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And when you say able to understand, I, I would assume at four, that would mean you can't ask like too many clarifying questions. Like the child should be able to communicate what it is that they're trying to communicate without those clarifying questions. So not necessarily, not necessarily like clarifying questions. I just mean you understand what they're trying to say. So okay. the clarity of their speech. So they're kind of, they're making a variety of different sounds. They're not substituting an L for a, you know, a W. Well, they might be, but maybe more like they're not substituting a, a K for a T because that would be a little concerning. Like if you're like, what did they just say? Um, I would think if they have a lot of substitutions or maybe if they're leaving consonant sounds off, you might want to get it checked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some benefits to getting kids to talk more and kind of assisting kids of all ages to talk more and kind of getting those difficult sounds down and perhaps some resources to help? Yeah. So just constantly talking to your kids and narrating and speaking clear, clearly to them, especially when you can make eye contact so they can see how your mouth is moving if they'll attend to it. Um Speech sounds, it really just depends, but asking your kid to fix it. I mean, a lot of times if they're er- they have a lot of errors with speech sounds, I feel like you should go see a professional because they'll be able to really teach you um, how to help with that. But yeah, I feel like just simple language goes a long way. Asking kids about their day, asking, you know, describing things. We sit in chairs. Can you put that on the table or? you know, where is your baby doll? It's under the table. So just using important words, like don't, you know, fixate on the auxiliaries like a and and just use those like function words, those nouns, the bigger words, the more important words and the ones that can be generalized like more and all done. Mm -hmm. And you don't use baby talk at all. You just are very, you use a lot of inflection. Yes. No baby talk. Um, your your child might respond with baby talk, but they'll pick up on water. It's not Wawa. They're not going to call it Wawa forever. We want them to be able to say water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but yes, I think there should always be emotion in speech. And, you know, if it's something exciting, make it sound exciting. If it's, you know, an exclamatory, ter- excuse me, exclamatory <laughs> word, <laughs> like we or go. Make it sound like that. Um, If you're telling them no and you're firm about it, make them know that you're firm about it by your tone of voice. But that doesn't mean yelling just by your tone. Yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking about you like tornadoing through our house, like waking up the kids way back when. And it was like, you just hear inflection, like even like Shay is so grumpy in the mornings, but like you would just like tickle her and use the perfect like energy to your voice. And she just responded so well to that. Like I, I didn't have that superpower, but you you have it for sure. Uh, kids, kids just respond well to like, yeah, the excitement. If it's a, if you want them to be excited, use exciting tones and, and ways of speaking. Yeah, exactly. So I, you may not know like statistics, like hard facts, but Generally, how many kids do you think at some point require some type of a speech intervention? I feel like it, yeah, I don't really know a hard number because it definitely varies on area too. But I feel like, honestly, 
I have met so many people in my life, even like peers in the workforce that are like, oh yeah, I went to speech when I was a kid. And just, I feel like we do so much. I mean, we do the language piece. We do the articulation piece, voice disorder, social skills, feeding, and all the oral motor. I mean, it's such a broad field. So I feel like, honestly, it feels like the majority of people go, obviously, that's mm-hmm. not the case. But sometimes it really it really feels like that. At some point in their life, some people saw a speech therapist. I mean, we treat literally from zero years old up until 100 and beyond for such a big variety of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In in terms of delaying intervention, that's a huge concern with speech. Or is it not? Is a more conservative kind of wait and see approach okay? The earlier, the better. The, you, I mean, in those first five years of life, our kids are like sponges. They're going to pick up on so much more than they would, you know, even between five and 10. It's just so important. The earlier you get in there, the better. Any concerns, you know, just nip it in the bud as soon as you can, if possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Any final advice, insights, wisdom, anything you'd like pa- to pass along? Uh, anything at all? Or any way for people to get in touch with you after the show if they're just interested in learning more or concerned about their child or somebody they know? Yeah, I always tell parents, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but you are your child's best advocate. You know them best. Their pediatrician sees them for about 10 minutes at a time. So just if you think they need it, advocate for them. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can on Instagram, jb.speechtherapy. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Thanks, Jess. We really appreciate it. That was great. Thanks, Jess. And Gina, mom win, favorite new product or recipe? Oh, yeah. You're going to love this, Nicole. (laughs) So I've been getting really lazy in the kitchen. I am going to be honest. I still have a goal of making two to three recipes, two minimum, three max recipes per week for my family, which I think I am. I have to say I'm very proud of that. But I've also been kind of in a rut as far as my quick meal ideas. When we were on um, vacation in Disney, the kids just really loved those giant Mickey mini shaped soft pretzels. And truthfully, I did too. They are so good. I actually really love soft pretzels. So I decided to go buy some just frozen soft pretzels. It it kind of reminded me that when I was the kid, I used to eat those all the time. I don't necessarily think they were for dinner, but my mom used to make me soft pretzels as a snack all the time. So I kind of forgot about them. So I've been (laughs) a couple of times recently, I have just nuked a a soft pretzel in the microwave for them with some salt. And then of course, you know, paired it with other things. So I'll put out like a a simple fruit salad. Oftentimes we're doing something like frozen edamame that I put in the microwave and steam or peas or broccoli with cheese. Uh, But it's just, you know, kind of an eclectic meal that I put together. So I've got the grain from the pretzel. I've got the fruit. I've got the vegetable and then, you know, milk or whatever they want to drink. A lot of times it's kombucha. So there's balance there, but it's just so, so easy. You might be thinking, where's the protein? I don't worry about getting protein in them in every single meal. I really don't. Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with giving a soft pretzel every once in a while, as long as you kind of balance it out with those other foods. So yeah, they've been <laughs> they've been really loving that, I will say. And uh, so have I, because I love soft pretzels. What about you, Nicole? Do you like soft pretzels? I do. I do. Yeah. Oh my God, they're so good. And... and <laughs> 
Nick will eat his without salt. Are you a salt or non-salt person? Oh, definitely salt. Thank you. I think he's the weirdest. Like, who does that? <laughs> this is weird, but hard pretzels to me uh, take me back to diet days, I would say. Like, baked fat Cheetos. Free. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. hard pretzels. Like, I ate so many hard pretzels dieting in my early teens. I They just don't interest me anymore. And I like them, especially the honey wheat ones. I do like them. But I, I just, to me, it's not something I look at and go, yeah, I really want that. Like the rolled gold or what are they called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. just a standard well, like pretzel. Is- um, let me think about that. I, okay, pretzels never did much for me. I've never been a huge pretzel eater. My dad used to always eat pretzels. They always remind me of my dad. He would just sit on the, you know, the recliner watching whatever and eating pretzels, usually with some type of a dip. It, they don't remind me of my diet days, but I do... That does not surprise me when you say that because they're, you know, like one of the first foods, snack foods that came out, you know, saying fat free. You know, I always think about that. They still say fat free on them. Yeah. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, it's like, it's like oranges for me. I kind of forget how much I love them. And then I rem- I'm reminded when I take my first bite, I don't ever think to get oranges. And then when I open them, it takes forever. And then I take a bite. I'm like, oh my gosh, why don't I eat these more often? They're so good. That's how I feel about pretzels. So especially soft pretzels. Yeah. That's funny. It, and it's funny you are saying that you're in a dinner rut because coming coming off of Bora Bora, I was like, okay, be kind, Nicole. Be kind to yourself. Do not go you know, with these lofty goals of what you're going to make for the week. And uh-huh. so I went to our last uh, Healthier in a Hurry episode. <laughs> and I pulled <laughs> recipes that you had recommended, one of which was the Mexican quinoa. Do you remember that in the Instant Pot? Mm-hmm. Good choice. Really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was awesome. We ate it with like chips. I, I, and the kids were like, it tastes like salsa. I'm like, cool, eat it up. Oh, yeah. um, and it's funny, they just learned what the word vegetarian means. I, I, I don't know how or why, but Shay mentioned it one night at dinner. And so we talked about, we had it on a Monday and I said, yeah, this was meatless Monday, huh? And uh, I talked, <laughs> I talked about quinoa and being a complete protein, like a, a, a dietitian mom. Um, anyway, <laughs> they were like, er? like just stop talking. Um, and then tonight I was thinking about this at 2 a.m. as I think jet lag was kick- still kicking in. Um, I'm making tonight your bow tie um, with the Alfredo sauce. <laughs> yes, like, man. I was like 10 years ago, I would have snubbed this recipe so hard being like, this is like, <laughs> like, this isn't cooking. This is like dumping. And, you know, I don't know, but I'm pretty excited about it. Not going to no, lie. It's so easy. I, I love that recipe. The kids love that too. Especially because it's bow tie. How fun. Yeah. So I'm hoping that goes over well. We'll see. Okay. But my real mom win, which is not food related, but those two recipes go back to our last healthier in a hurry. Uh, those are, those are both Gina's mentions on that episode. Uh, mine is for Bora Bora. Actually, I was like, okay, I'm not going to take lingerie because I've got a weight limit on my uh, suitcase here. And I, 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 there's nothing else that can go. So I bought for not only like the weight because I think it's lighter weight than what I would normally wear to bed, but also just like cute are these silk jammies. So it's like a spaghetti strap tank top with like an adjustable strap and then um, 
like silk shorts. So it's like a silk cami and silk shorts that are like a jammy set. And I got them off Amazon. They're inexpensive, but they washed really well. And they're just, they're cute. It's like just sexy enough. Mark said they're kind of old lady, but I totally <laughs> disagree. I think they're sexy. So I'm going with sexy. So I'm going to link those in the show notes. Okay. I have to look at them now. Okay. I'm putting them in. So I bought four pairs. Oh. They're cute, okay. right? I mean, okay. I, I have oh. to say. <laughs> Okay, I do. It does remind me of my mom a little bit. But, oh no! But when she was, but when she was already, well, your mom's okay, so cute. So she is cute. She's definitely cute. But she and she always wears very minimal clothing to to bed, which I'm starting to understand. You know, as I'm approaching forty, because I always am very hot in bed. So <laughs> I, I look at these, and I actually am reminded of what she used to wear again when I was a kid. So when she was about our age, so I mean, it makes sense. I'm not, it doesn't remind me of my mom now. It just reminds me of my mom as a kid. So that's not a bad thing. So I, I think that they're actually really, really cute. Do you actually yeah. think they're really, really cute? No, I really do. I, I don't know that I would. I, so the, I don't know if this is the color that you got. Did you get the, what color is this? The gray? I got light gray, like a peachy pink, a dark blue, like a navy blue, and then a purple, like a lilac-y. Oh, you got quite a few. Okay. So I would have probably gotten the um, the champagne. I like that. Like, I feel like that's that probably looks... the one I got. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. That one's. Yeah. No, I do actually think these are really cute. I am not a like cute pajama type person. I wear like old shirts and pants to bed every night and sometimes just a shirt and underwear. So I'm just, this is foreign to me, but I do think that they're really cute. And for vacation. I wear men's I boxers and like the most, like whatever t-shirt I cooked in that had like grease splatter or like, you know, when <laughs> olive oil pops and it never comes out of a shirt. Like that's what I wear to bed. So it's like, I'm going to, we're going to Bora Bora. Like I can, I can put a little effort in here without going like, you know, wasting luggage space on true lingerie. Well, okay. I'm confused when you say that because lingerie would take up less space than this. Isn't that the point of lingerie? Yeah, it's but really that is small. not practical. I I need no. Like oh. I I I cannot sleep in just underwear or just a tank top. Like I need like little shorts and something like ideally a tank top. That's so you what, would be pick you would be you would be packing lingerie and something like this. I would if, never yes. sleep. Do people actually sleep in lingerie? I don't think so <laughs> because whenever I wear it, it's like after everything is over, it is straight to the back to the drawer. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't even wear time. it long enough to wash it. You're just like, you're going back in the drawer. <laughs> oh, heck no. That stuff probably gets washed like once every year. <laughs> I mean, it's on rotation. Okay. I've got quite a few. We'll just say that. Oh, go yeah. back. Okay. <laughs> All right. So coming up on April 24th, we will be dishing about self-care, specifically refreshing your home. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. And if you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right, everyone. Until next time, be well. And Nicole, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Gina. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.